Stem Fatal, your women in science history podcast. Not spooky anymore. No, this is actually going to be a non-spooky episode. Thanks. Maybe. Yes. I feel like we're a little early. Are we a little early? I guess not. We could maybe next up we'll say what we're thankful for. Okay. (laughs) It will be definitely after Thanksgiving. I'm thankful for women in STEM. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thankful for trailblazers. Yeah. Um, oh well. Oh well. That's fine. Okay. That's we can good be, enough. I, we can try to throw in some thankfulness here. Yeah, we'll figure. Hither we'll, and thither. Definitely. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm Emily Gremlin, and I'm Emma Dilemma, and we're your co-hosts with the Mohos. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I want to first give a shout out to Zen Fox. Ooh. At Dr. Zen on Twitter, who suggested nice. this woman of the week or of the bi week of the, the bi month. <laughs> yeah. Um, I never actually know if bi weekly means twice a week. It means or both, I think, which is extremely is so useless. <laughs> <laughs> Just every other week, I guess. Yeah. It's better. And so this woman, I try, I, I didn't think of a question, but now I have do you know alvin simon and theodore no of the chipmunks oh yes how do you get a voice like that um either it's you're very high. a child you're or you're a chipmunk or you're a child chipmunk why is the others options um some kind of recording equipment <laughs> what are the natural options um the natural options are talking really high like constricting <laughs> your vocal cords or something what would make my voice higher talking higher what do you mean what hormones could you, or something what could you take what could you take pills <laughs> what's that <laughs> what is happening i don't know emlyn i clearly what, don't know what element could you take Oh, helium. Yes. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> that was worse than my termite house question. I had to think of it on the fly. What could you take? Uh, I don't know how. What could you inhale, in- inhale from a balloon? <laughs> yeah. Um, that no, seems I like liked it. That okay. was really good. Oh, thanks. Good it's very supportive. <laughs> yeah. I'm thankful for how supportive you're being. I'm thankful um, for how thankful you are. <laughs> So this woman discovered what else helium's very uh, important for, oh. and that is the sun and the stars and their <laughs> composition. <laughs> I think I've seen this in my, uh, I, I don't remember her name off the top of my head, but I've definitely seen this person like looking around online, mm-hmm. so that's cool. Her name is Cecilia Helena Payne Gaposhkin. Wow, what a name. <laughs> what a name. <laughs> Um, okay, so are you ready? You yeah. ready to learn about this trailblazer? I am. We're, we're diving into astrophysics today. Oh, great. <laughs> Stars. Stars. And the, how they operate. Yes, exactly. I guess. Yeah. All right, so 
Helena, oh, uh, Cecilia Helena Payne was born on May 10th, 1900 in Wendover, England to Emma Leonora Helena and Edward John Payne. And Cecilia was one of three other children who I know nothing about. Yeah. And her mother came from a Prussian family, and then they gave a bunch of information about her famous male relatives. And oh. I don't know anything more about her mother. That was all just in <laughs> reference to, like... Strange. Were males. they royalty or, like... They had some... They had oh. some chutzpah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, and her father was a London barrister, historian, and accomplished musician. Oh, great. And Cecilia Payne's father died when she was four years old, forcing her mother to raise the family on her own. Though I also found nothing else about that. So, oh, wow. It's just not that much information about her as a young person. What year was she born again? 1900. Okay. Hmm. So then she attended St. Paul's Girls' School in West London for... The equivalent of, I'm guessing, like high school. Yeah. And in 1919, she won a scholarship to Newnham College at Cambridge University. Oh, cool. Where she read. So reading is studying. Yeah. Like going to classes. Yeah. Uh, she studied botany, physics, and chemistry. She came into college wanting to do botany. Wow. But then she attended a lecture by astrophysicist Arthur Eddington. He's, he's Doesn't a Doesn't ring a bell, yep, yep, but yep. I believe you that he's a physicist. Yes. <laughs> In this lecture, he discussed his 1919 expedition to the island of Principe in the Gulf of Guinea off the coast of Africa. Wow. During this expedition, he observed and photographed the stars near a solar eclipse as a test of Einstein's general theory of relativity. Huh. I wonder why he had to go there to observe the stars. <laughs> it's, uh, I don't know why he had to go there. I wasn't or, sure why observing the stars yeah, has anything to do with Einstein's theory of relativity, but I also don't know that much about Einstein's theory of relativity. theory to you, really. I have this thing that's uh, on my sheet that says, only read if Emma asks. Oh. Is you, it boring? Is that why? <laughs> or just um, very technical? It's not that technical, but it's... I don't know. It's okay. okay. We're not learning about him today. <laughs> we, don't we don't care about him. We don't care about Arthur. Anyway, so based on this lecture she got, this really sparked her interest in astronomy, but she couldn't switch over to astronomy based on just how the system goes. Yeah. Essentially, you have three topics you're studying, and you can then go on to pick one of them as your major. Oh, that's kind of cool. Um, And so she was going to do botany, but instead she sh switched over to physics, which was one of the things that she was already wow. studying. And she did that because of her interest in this astrophysicist yeah. and his work. Yeah. And she said of the lecture, the result was a complete transformation of my world picture. My world had been so shaken that I experienced something like a nervous breakdown. Oh my gosh. <laughs> have you gone to a lecture where you just have a mental breakdown? Not a mental breakdown. Like occasionally I'll, I'll come out and just be like, wow, that was really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's pretty sugar intense. sugar to her core. Yeah. <laughs> And so then she completed her studies in physics, but was not awarded a degree because of her sex. So this confused me. So she got a scholarship to go study, but they wouldn't, because she was a female, give her a degree. Yeah. Like, why would they let her study all those or take all those classes, I guess? Yeah. Um, Did so she get any degree? Cambridge did not grant degrees to women until 1948. Oh, so they were just so she was allowed to take classes, yeah. 
But so according to Cecilia, she says it meant that you were granted a certificate saying that you had fulfilled the requirements that would, if you had been a man, entitled you to a B.A., that you had passed the examinations and had attained a certain level in them. And if you had been a man, therefore, you would have gotten a B.A. That's so insane. So that was only like 100 years ago. I know. (laughs) Yeah. So it was just Uh, an empty title right kind of. or like yeah. she didn't even have a title strange so then after she got her ba co- yeah she uh, did she you know? did yeah yeah cecilia realized that her only career option in the uk was to become a teacher yeah um so she looked for grants that would enable her to move to the united states oh. and after being introduced to harlow shapely the director of the harvard college observatory uh, who had just begun a grad program in astronomy, she left England in 1923 to go to Harvard. Nice. And this was made possible by a fellowship to encourage women to study at the observatory. And the first study, or the first woman, the first student <laughs> on the fellowship was Adelaide Ames, oh. and the second was Cecilia. Oh, wow. And okay. I've heard of Adelaide Ames, I but I don't it. know. Yeah. I don't know why I've heard of her. Well... Because she's probably awesome. Yeah, if she was a trailblazer, mm-hmm. I guess. So Shapely persuaded Cecilia to write a doctoral dissertation. I guess she had gone not necessarily with the atten- the idea of getting a PhD, yeah. but Shapely convinced her to write a doctoral dissertation. And so in 1925, she became the first person to earn a PhD in astronomy. Wow. From Wait, uh, first person? First person from Radcliffe College, oh, which is part of gotcha. Harvard. Now. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is the, the women's school. Yeah. yeah. However, writing her dissertation was not easy for Cecilia. And during her final months working on it, Cecilia wrote, There followed months, almost a year, as I remember, of utter bewilderment. Often I was in a state of exhaustion and despair, working all night and late into the l- oh working all day gosh. and late into the night. So I I feel yeah, I feel Cecilia. We're all there right now, <laughs> Cecilia. <laughs> I am constantly in a state of bewilderment uh, and despair and utter bewilderment. Okay, but she did finish her thesis, and her Mm -hmm. thesis was called Stellar Atmospheres, a contribution to the observational study of high temperature in the reversing layers of stars. Wow. Doesn't mean much to me. No. But her thesis was famously described by astronomer Otto Struve, as the most brilliant PhD thesis ever written in astronomy. Oh my god. <laughs> That's quite a Yeah. All that bewilderment paid off. Like he described it that way later or at that time? I think later. Wow. That's yeah. intense. I don't know exactly when he said that, yeah. but Okay, so I'm gonna give you a little background about astrophysics. Okay. And then sure. I'll tell you yeah, what I'll her, take it. <laughs> what her I'll break down what her thesis actually was. Okay. It was stellar, though. It was. Yeah. Uh, so a bit of background on star classification. Right. Stars give off electromagnetic radiation, right? Yep. And this electromagnetic radiation can be analyzed by splitting it with a prism into a spectrum of colors that's interspersed with spectral lines. Right. And these lines represent a specific element, and the line length represents the abundance of that element. So by you know using this prism, you can see what these stars are made of. Cool. And these spectral characteristics determine the spectral classes of stars. And so when Cecilia Payne began her study of 
stellar spectra, scientists believe that the relative abundance of elements in the atmosphere of the suns and stars were similar to that of the Earth's crust. So everything was kind of made of the same, you know. Yeah. It was just elements, I guess. A burning Earth, essentially. They were all made of the same elements and in the same kind of proportions. Oh, and the preeminent American physicists at the time, uh, Henry Russell and Henry Rowland, believed that the elemental abundances of on Earth and the sun were substantially identical. So that was wow. kind of the thought yeah. at the time. Sort of the hypothesis mm-hmm. people were testing. And so for her dissertation, Cecilia was able to accurately relate the spectral classes of stars to their actual temperatures by applying the ionization theory huh. developed by Indian physicist Meghnad Saha. And so I think essentially... Saha just showed how to relate the ratio of excited states to ground states to the temperature of the stellar atmosphere. So the ionization theory, I think, is just the idea that things can be ionized and so mm. electrons can go into higher okay. orbitals. Yeah. I think that's pretty much what it is. And so that changes what their spectral <clears throat> classes are. Okay. So if you look at a prism, those lines are going to be different if, say, the element has been heated so that more of those electrons are in higher states. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. <sighs> you did it. You're good. Okay. I'm thankful for your explanation of spectral stellars. <laughs> stellar spectral. <laughs> Thank you. Cecilia showed that the great variation in stellar absorption lines, so that these are just the absorption lines of different stars, uh, was due to differing amounts of ionization at different temperatures. Oh, so the stars cool. are different temperatures. Yeah. So they have different ionizations. And so oh. therefore they have different, when you look at their spectral kind of lines, they're yeah. different. So she showed that stars aren't all identical in what they're made of. Yeah. So there was this great variation in these absorption lines. And yeah. a lot of it is the same elements. Oh, okay. But because some stars are warmer than hotter than yeah, others, okay, it, that they look different. Got it. Um, so she showed that a lot of these kind of heavier elements, the stars didn't differ in their amount of these elements. Cool. So she found that silicon, carbon, and other common metals seen in the sun's spectrum were present in about the same relative amounts as on Earth. Oh, wow. That's crazy. And so that was in agreement with the accepted belief of the time. Yeah. Right. However, she also applied Saha's equations to lighter elements, such Uh as hydrogen and helium. And she found that helium, and particularly hydrogen, were vastly more abundant than previously thought. Oh, cool. So for hydrogen, for example, by a factor of about one million. Oh, my God. So really off. Yeah. Thus, her thesis established that hydrogen was the overwhelming constituent of the stars, along with helium, to a lesser extent. And she found similar results for other stars as well. So this wasn't just, you know, one sun that was different. And so Payne concluded that unlike on Earth, hydrogen and helium are the dominant elements of the sun and stars and thus the universe. Whoa. That's pretty major. Yeah. Imagine if like what you studied was applicable (laughs) to the whole universe. (laughs) Like you found some fundamental truth of the whole universe. Yeah. That's so cool. So Pretty big finding that she yeah. had. It changes how For we think PhD, of the whole no universe. No wonder she was in such bewilderment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so when Payne's dissertation was reviewed, astronomer Henry Russell, who was one of the people who had, was the preeminent yeah. American uh, astrophysicist that thought that the elements 
on the earth and sun and stars were all the same. Yeah. Right. He dissuaded her from concluding that the composition of the sun was predominantly hydrogen and thus very different from that of the earth. As it contradicted the accepted wisdom of the time, i.e. his wisdom. Yes. So she consequently described the result in her thesis as spurious. Oh, my gosh. Russell realized she was correct four years later after having derived the same result by different means and published it in 1929. Asshole. Oh, my God. That's terrible. <laughs> but Did in his defense, her? he acknowledged Payne's work and discovery admiringly in his paper. Okay. But nevertheless, he is often credited with the conclusions that she reached. That's So I think insane. he did try to make up for it, but based Not on the enough. fact that... He published a paper that says it, and she didn't. Yeah. And the fact that he was probably a man. A lot of credit goes to him when it actually was her that discovered Wow. That's terrible. Yeah. So, don't always listen to people on your committee. Yeah. (laughs) That are trying to bring you down. I wonder, like, okay. I mean, but sometimes do listen to them. You probably don't know the answer to this. (laughs) Probably not. But I wonder if he really just... I wonder if he was skeptical of her findings Mm -hmm. and was like, you know, maybe we need to like find this out more Mm -hmm. before like making a big claim. Or was he actually just trying to like suppress her? Yeah, it's hard to know. I mean, I didn't probably she has a autobiography that she wrote that would be, I think, really fun to read. And I feel like she probably has some comments about yeah that. and it, you might get a better sense of maybe their relationship consciously he was like oh this is i don't know yeah. against what i think and yeah, yeah. And, and, and there might be evidence one way or the other but from my kind of cursory look yeah it wasn't clear if it was the fact that he he did seem to try to make it up yeah once he published it yeah. but it, it could also <laughs> But I would think like he would publish he with her, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and, like, maybe he didn't believe her because she's a she, yeah. you know, or, like, believe it was real because she found it mm-hmm. and not some, like, prominent Old. male physicist. Yeah. 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 So. Interesting. Very interesting. There's a physics history from the American Physics Society. And they have a whole kind of write-up about her. Okay. And they say, the giants, Copernicus, Newton, and Einstein, each in his turn brought a new view of the universe. Payne's discovery of the cosmic abundance of the elements did no less. Aww. So they're really that's showing great. how important. Like, yeah. she figured out what the universe is made of. Yeah, that's which is pretty really cool. <laughs> <laughs> and so on completing her doctorate, after considering other opportunities, decided to stay on at Harvard. At the time, advancement to professor was denied to women at Harvard. Of course. So she spent years in lesser, low-paid positions. Terrible. I know. And then in 1931, Payne became an American citizen, which will be relevant in a second. Oh. Um, In 1934, Cecilia visited the observatory in Leningrad at a time of great Soviet-German tension, hard living conditions, and suspicion of foreigners. Oh, boy. She continued on to visit Germany, where conditions were equally tense, and met a young Russian astronomer, Sergei Gaposhkin. Oh. 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 (laughs) Despite hardships and persecution in the Soviet Union because of his political views, he had achieved success as an astronomer. However, he faced persecution because he was Russian. And so he asked her to help him get to America. And she was moved by his story and his fine, fine physique. No, I don't know. (laughs) 
<laughs> she was moved by his she story. Was thankful for his physique. <laughs> his fine physique. His physique. Astrophysique. Astro. Yeah. I okay. We well, yeah. got. Everybody right. gets it. It's just not funny. <laughs> <laughs> um. So. She was moved by his story, and after returning home, she worked hard to get him a visa as a stateless person. Like, he had no home that was safe, I think is what that means. And so he came later in 1934, and they married, and she became Cecilia Payne Gaposhkin. Aww. Yeah. That's cool. And they had three children, Edward, Catherine, and Peter. Her daughter remembers her as an inspired seamstress, an inventive knitter, and a voracious reader. What? Also, also a sign. I don't know. Yeah, it was yeah, like, a like weird... she discovered this amazing thing about the universe, but, <laughs> but she is also really good at knitting. <laughs> I mean, she's a she's a diverse woman. Yeah. After her doctorate, Payne studied stars of high luminosity in order to understand the structure of the Milky Way. So that just means they're bright. Okay. Yeah. Later, she surveyed all of the stars brighter than the tenth magnitude, which is Ooh. just some way that they describe how bright stars are so apparently these are any star that can be seen with a a 7 by 50 binoculars whatever those so if you can see them with probably really good binoculars that's the level of stars that makes sense so she looked at like all stars more that's a lot of stars i'm guessing she then studied variable stars whose brightness as seen from earth fluctuates so you know the twinkling cool yeah twinkle stars twinkle as i call them yeah uh, she made over 1,250,000 observations with her assistants. This work later was extended to the Magellanic, Magellanic clouds, huh. which are dwarf galaxies that are orbiting the Milky Way. Wait, do you mean like Magellan? Like, no. M-A-G-E-L-L-A-N-I-C. Yeah, I think those are named after Magellan. No? Magellanic? I don't know. Magellanic? I still don't know how you would say that word, but... (laughs) Okay. Okay. Uh, And this work added a further 2 million observations on twinkly twinkly stars. Wow. That's insane. And this data was used to determine the paths of stellar evolution. Essentially, they used all of this data to look at how stars changed over time. Ah, okay. To see, you know, from the birth of a star to an an old, old star. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> There's stars to the yeah. death of a star. Yeah, to the death of a star. And she published her conclusions. Uh, she wrote a couple books. Uh, the book on all of these observations about stars were in a book called Stars of High Luminosity. Nice. And her observations and analyses with her husband, Sergei Gaposhkin, of twinkly stars laid the basis for all subsequent work on them that's been done. Wow. So she did. That's cool. She is the basis for all of that. Crazy. So Cecilia remained scientifically active throughout her life, spending her entire academic career at Harvard. At first, she had no official position, as is the case with a lot of our women, where they're just like doing awesome science and nobody wants to give them a job and they're doing it pro bono. Yeah. Um, And she was merely serving as a technical assistant to Shapley, who's in charge of the observatory, Hmm. from 1927 to 1938. And at one point, she considered leaving Harvard because of her low status and poor salary. However, Shapley made efforts to improve her position. And in 1938, she was given the title of astronomer. Wow. Um, which I think means she was like a professor. I yeah. Think. At least like a full research mm-hmm. position, I guess. And then she was elected a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1943. Wow, nice. 
And she, I guess, taught a bunch, but none of the courses she taught at Harvard were recorded in the catalog until 1945. So they were like huh. unofficial classes that she taught. How did people even know? I don't know. Word of mouth. Class. You gotta. Yeah. And then when Donald Menzel became director of the Harvard College Observatory in 1954, he tried to improve her appointment again. And in 1956, she became the first woman to be promoted to full professor from within the faculty of Harvard's Faculty of Arts and Sciences. Wow. So the first woman woman to be full professor at Harvard. And then later she was appointed to the chair of the Department of Astronomy, and she became the first woman to head a department at Harvard as well. Oh, my gosh. So lots of firsts. Yeah. Um, Also, I didn't know where to put this, but I thought it was funny. And I don't quite know when she did this. Sometime when she was at Harvard, uh, she wrote in her autobiography that while in school she created create or maybe it was when she was younger i don't know when this is okay that's okay in her autobiography uh she says that while in school she created an experiment on the efficacy of prayer by dividing her exams in two groups praying for success only on one and the other (laughs) used as a control group wait so like she was Dividing her own exams. This is why it made me think that she was teaching. Yeah. Right. Okay. Though I don't know how ethical that is. Well, I mean, I'm guessing there was no... There was no effect. And later she became an agnostic. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Because of her study. I like that. Just like a nice study, like testing this hypothesis. Does brain work? Anyways, so... It's funny to think she's like, oh, yes, God will give me better grades <laughs> if I pray for them. <laughs> anyway. I'm yeah. sure some people think that. Yeah. Could be. Okay. So she taught a lot of students who, if you are an astronomer or an astrophysicist, you will recognize these names potentially. Oh, I'm going to okay. read them. Okay. They don't ring a bell. Her students included Helen Sawyer Hogg, oh. Joseph Ashbrook, Frank Drake. Harlan Smith and Paul W. Hodge, who all made important contributions to astronomy. And Pangaposhkin retired from active teaching in 1966 Mm. and was subsequently appointed as emeritus professor of Harvard. And she continued to research as a member of staff in the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory, editing journals and books published at Harvard Observatory for the next 20 years. Wow. And according to G. Koss, Simone and Patricia Farnes, Payne's career marked a turning point at Harvard College Observatory under the direction of Harlow Shapley and Dr. E.J. Sheridan. The observatory had already offered more opportunities in astronomy to women than other institutions had. That's good. Um, However, with Cecilia's PhD, women entered the mainstream. And so I think there was a lot more women entering the field. That's cool. um, Both at Harvard and probably elsewhere. And the trail she blazed into the largely male-dominated scientific community was an inspiration to many. That's awesome. So she was very inspirational. And her obituary in the quarterly journal of the Royal Astronomer read, in part, Cecilia Helena Pangaposhkin, a pioneering astrophysicist and probably the most eminent woman astronomer of all time, died in Cambridge, Massachusetts on December 7th, 1979. In the 1920s, she derived the cosmic abundance of the elements from stellar spectra and demonstrated for the first time the chemical homogeneity of the universe. Wow. And that is Cecilia Helena Pangaposhkin. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Yeah, she's a cool lady. There wasn't that much information about her 
after she retired or like what her life was like. But if you want to read her autobiography, I'm sure it's in there. Yeah. Is it just like I think it's just called autobiography or something? Cecilia Helena yeah, Poshkin. Yeah. Okay, cool. <laughs> I don't think it'll be easy to find. Yeah. An autobiography. Writing a book about yourself seems hard. Yeah. Yeah. I don't You wouldn't do it? No. That's okay. I also elaborate everything. Yeah, I just feel like I don't remember enough. No. I have <laughs> terrible memory. So But I love her. She's yeah, great. She's great. She told us what the world's made of. I know. The universe. That's really crazy. Mm-hmm. Twinkly stars. The twinkly stars. So many observations. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, she's very cool. Nice. Yeah. Yay. Yay. Then you cough. All right. So now we've got our women who work segment where we shout out to badass women making history in STEM today. <laughs> I love it. It's great. Okay, so Emlyn, last time <laughs> we recorded, you told us about a bunch of amazing women in STEM that were running for office. I did. Yeah. And um, so at the time of this recording, which is a couple days after the midterms um, were decided, mm-hmm. most of them at least. We're recovering. In all, over 119 women have won seats uh, women across all fields yeah. have won seats in Congress and governor races, nice. which is pretty That's exciting. So exciting. And in science-specific election news, okay, so first, almost 18 candidates with STEM backgrounds won their races. Nice. And some of these I couldn't find. I'm not really sure, actually. Some places it said, like, at least 10 some said at least 12 it's kind of confusing but a few of these were women like elaine luria who Mm -hmm. you talked about last time a u.s navy veteran and nuclear engineer in virginia chrissy houlihan a former business executive with a degree in engineering in pennsylvania registered nurse lauren underwood in illinois a former senior advisor to the department of health and human services and another health professional, pediatrician Kim Schreier, also flipped a Republican seat in Washington's 8th District. And a couple more, Jackie Rosen, yeah, who you talked about, about last Rosen. time, who, again, like worked a long, uh, for a long time as a computer programmer and mm-hmm. software engineer, has been in the House in Nevada yeah. and just won her Senate race. And Jasmine Clark, who had received her PhD in microbiology from Emory and um, defeated incumbent Clay Cox in their general election for Georgia House of Representatives. That's wonderful. Yeah, so many like amazing women in STEM winning their elections. And in other good news, um, so we know that Lamar Smith, uh, (laughs) our favorite Texas politician, J.K., uh, adamant climate change denier mm-hmm. and current head of the House Science Committee. So upsetting. Um, he's didn't run for re-election, mm-hmm. right? He's retiring, thank God. Um, but someone needs to take his place. And now that Dems uh, have taken control of the House, it's very likely that Eddie Bernice Johnson, an actually great Texas politician mm-hmm. and ranking member of the committee, will take over for him. So... And she has a, I was reading something about her and she has a STEM background and it'll, she'll yeah. be the 
first chair. She would be the first chair of that committee, the science committee, to have a STEM background since the 90s. Yeah, since 1990, <laughs> which is insane. Uh. Yeah, she worked for a, a long time as a psychiatric nurse. Okay, nice. Yeah, and then got into politics, mm-hmm. and she's been on this committee for a really long time. And is looking to bring science back to the science committee. What do you know? So a lot of goals. Yeah. So, you know, not everyone we wanted to win won Mm -hmm. this round, but a lot of great people did win their elections. And I'm excited to see like science have a bigger stronghold in our political system. Definitely. Starting in January. We need it. Awesome. I love that. Yeah. Exciting. Very excited about that. Yeah. All of the shifting. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Getting more women in positions and more science women. Yeah, very exciting. Women and just like a more diverse political system Mm -hmm. in general. It's going to be good. Yeah. Yeah. The first like Muslim women to Congress. There's two of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's awesome. Woo woo. Good job, ladies. Yeah. Good Good going, going, gals. (laughs) (laughs) That was terrible. Uh, all right i like so, that we're ta- we're co-opting ggg from i know Savage. <laughs> which i don't want to co-opt ggg or change it but no ggg is okay. good all of the ggg's are i good. don't think our ggg is gonna catch on no it's not anytime as... soon so no i don't think he'll be mad <laughs> <laughs> no all right okay so that's our episode we yeah. want to thank, as always, Caitlin Friesen for our wonderful, beautiful art of all these yeah. amazing Steminists and Artichoke for our theme music. And we also want to reach out to you guys and ask to please, if you like what we're doing, rate, review, subscribe. Uh, it, it really makes a difference. Yeah. Retweet. Uh, all of those things help us get a little more yeah. prominence. And We have Instagram. Oh, Twitter, we have Instagram. We have email, Twitter. Get at us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right, thanks for listening. Thanks, and, and go, go stimulate, stimulate yourself. yourself.